Let's start at the beginning, shall we? How do you feel about that? Yeah. Good. I, I, just, I just wasn't sensing any excitement here, that's all. Let me, and so this morning, um, just by way of introduction, I want to look at the first couple of verses and, um, and then we'll gather around the communion table as a family. Um, the book of Romans has been called by many uh, the most powerful document ever written. Now, I don't know how you feel about that statement, but I've heard it said many times in many different ways. But we know that that book that is upon your lap, the Bible, we, we know it's not just a document, don't we? We know it's not just a document. We know that it is the inspired word of God. We know that every word in that, if we want to call it a document, that book, we know that every word is God-breathed. Every sentence is formed to teach us to correct us, to rebuke us even. It's been given to us to train us, the scripture says, in righteousness that we should be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has called you to, child of God. Every good work, you know. It's, 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 it's by the word of God that the spirit of God sanctifies us. In this opening verse, Paul's going to talk about being set apart. It's, it's the Word of God, or the Spirit of God, that washes us and purifies our lives. That book that you have there, it will guide you. It will protect you. It will give you purpose. It will give you destiny. It, it has shaped society, hasn't it? It's forged the very world in which we live in. But most importantly, what this book does, it communicates to us the heart of God's great love for all humanity. That's what it does. This book is of immeasurable, immeasurable importance, immeasurable influence. It is the most important document ever written. Having said that, and reading some of the things that I've read by notable men about this book, um, it is that book that you have on your laps and the book of Romans that is within that book that has in the minds of many people no doubt moved mankind maybe more than any other book it found in that book on your lap. Am I making any sense? That's what some people hold to. And I just want to read a few uh, very familiar, well, they might be familiar quotes actually, they're from familiar people to us. And uh, so look, just let me read these things. And it says, in the summer of 386, you know who Augustine was, don't you? Augustine lost, it says, lost and feeling dead for God read. And he read from Romans chapter 13. He said, not in, he read, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery or in licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but on the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That is Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. He read that, and the quote says, Through the power of God's word, Augustine gained the faith to give his whole life to Jesus Christ. In that moment, reading the book of Romans, these verses brought about his conversion 
And he became in many minds one of the greatest theologians or theologians of the, of the church, especially of the early church. Now, if we jump forward about 1,200 or a bit more than that, about 1,200 years, we come to the 1500s, and in 1513, uh, we read of a monk lectured on the book of Psalms. And it says to Bible students, but his inner life, it says this monk, his inner life was nothing but turmoil in his studies. He came across Psalm 31. You don't know who this monk is yet, do you? I'm sure some of you do. But he came across Psalm 31 and it says in the first verse, In thy righteousness deliver me. The passage confused the monk whose name was Luther. And he said, how could God's righteousness do anything but condemn him to hell as a righteous punishment for his sin? He recognized his own sin. And Luther kept thinking about Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, who knows, the just shall live by faith. That monk, Luther, went on to say, Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is, is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Therefore, he says, I felt myself to re be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, this passage of Paul became for him a gateway into heaven, he said. Martin Luther was born again and the Reformation began in his heart. And of course, the Holy Spirit, using these verses, brought Luther to Christ and Reformation to the entire world. Now we jump ahead, say, 200 years to about 1738 and we read of a failed minister and missionary who reluctantly went to a small Bible study where someone read aloud from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans and it says, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, this gentleman said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine. You know who that was? That was John Wesley. And he was saved that night in London. He had returned to London from, the, from, the, from America where he had gone to convert the American um, Indians but discovered that he himself was not converted. He comes back to England, he goes to London, he goes to this little small Bible study and suddenly from the, the gospel declared through the, through, the, uh, through the book of Romans, he says, I felt my heart strangely warm." And I did trust Christ for the first time as, as, as Saviour. For the first time he had assurance that Christ alone was enough. 
John Wesley was saved that night in London. Then along with his brother Charles, whom we know, he would be the tools or they would be the tools or the impetus that God would use to bring that great Wesleyan revival throughout the United Kingdom. Going back to Martin Luther, Martin Luther praised Romans. He said it is the chief part of the New Testament and the, and the perfect gospel. It is the absolute epitome of the gospel. Luther's successor can't say his name. I practiced it and practiced it, so I'm not even going to try to say it. Said that called Romans, the, the I can't even read that word. He said it's really good. Samuel Coolidge, English poet and literary critic, said Paul's letter to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. Frederick Goddick, the 19th century Swiss theologian, called the book of Romans the cathedral of Christ's faith. I love that. And G. Campbell Morgan, getting a, more, a little more closer to our times, said Romans was the most... Now, he gave it as a... He said it was the most pessimistic page of literature upon which your eyes ever rested. And once we get into Romans chapter 1, you'll recognise that. He said it was the most pessimistic page of literature upon which your eyes ever rested. And at the same time, when we get to Romans chapter 8, it is the most optimistic poem to which your ears have ever listened. What are these men saying? These great men, what are they saying? They are saying that the book of Romans revives people's hearts is what they are saying it revives and it transforms it brought these great men of the church out of the state of lifeless religious and they were all religious men brought them out of this state of lifeless religious pursuits into the joy of salvation by grace through faith in christ alone it brings power to the life to the heart to the individual and to nations alike. Now I'm excited about our study in the book of Romans because my prayer is that our time in the book of Romans will do just that within our hearts, within our lives. I pray that it will revive our hearts. It will revive our hearts that we might share this wonderful gospel of God's grace, love and mercy that, that it might be shared from our lives not just our words, but our very lives, wherever our life may find us, that we will, you know, Ramon sung about it this morning, you know, from this guttural core of the being, just want to know him, more of him. That's a cry for revival. And who of us can honestly say, and let me ask you this, who of us can honestly say we don't need to be revived right now? Oh, I'm glad you're silent. Because none of us could say that. You know what revival is? Essentially, it's the awakening of the heart towards repentance. It's the awakening of the heart towards repentance, devotion, and the service of God. It's when God's word, please note this, it's when God's word is ignited in the heart of the believer by the Spirit of God. That's why true revival, true revival always creates an insatiable hunger for his word. An insatiable hunger for his word. And that insatiable hunger will always be accompanied by a sweeping repentance. As God's word grips your heart and you recognize the need 
Oh, you look in the mirror some mornings, don't you? You just think, God, God, do something. Change this man. Change this woman. And there's a sense of sweeping repentance. And with that sense of sweeping repentance comes this solemn commitment to that word to be never found where I was yesterday. You know, that's revival. I don't want to be who I was yesterday. But I don't want to remain who I am today. I want to be more like him tomorrow. I want it to continue. I want it to keep on continuing. That's revival. Who, let me ask it again, who doesn't want to be revived? I want silence. Who wants to be revived? Yes, 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 yes. Here's the reason that this book has been so instrumental in reviving hearts to God. It's because it touches every basic of Christian doctrine and teaching. It is the Apostle Paul giving us, or it's the systematic laying out of truth concerning three things, basically. God's righteousness, man's sinfulness, and his plan to save us. It's the systematic unfolding of those truths. So it begins in the first chapter by revealing that the whole world is guilty before God. That's why I could call little Elena a sinner. And she, like you and I, born with a fallen nature, need to be forgiven, need to be saved, need to be washed clean, need a new nature, need to be made spiritually alive because we were born already dead. We were born already ruined when we stepped out of the womb. But God is a plan. And Romans unfolds that plan for us and it brings revival to the heart. So it reveals that the whole world is guilty and you get into, uh, then you get into the first three chapters and it begins to focus on man, yes, man's lack of righteousness and God's abundance of grace. But let, man, no, first, excuse me, I'm stumbling over my lip. <laughs> man's lack of righteousness and abundance of sin, we get to the fourth chapter and the fifth chapter and it begins to speak about how we can receive God's perfect righteousness and his justification is, begins to be revealed to us in those chapters. And we get to the challenging but wonderful chapters of chapter 6 through 8 and the unfolding of the transformed life begins to be revealed to us. And he speaks about victory over the flesh. He speaks about liberty from the law. He speaks about security that we can have in the spirit. And it just keeps on getting better as we are revived. And so we, like Luther and Wesley... And so many that have gone before us, we can come away from this book revived. We can. If we will open our hearts to God through this book, if we will do that, these words will grip our lives. This is my promise to you over these coming months. He will grip your lives if you let him and he will revive your hearts. Again, that's not only what we need, it's what the church needs. Constant revival. 
So are you ready? Let's go. Let's get alive, shall we? So Paul begins, and these few verses is an introduction of Paul, who Paul is. He begins by introducing himself to the believers at Rome. Um, he's writing from Corinth. He's on his third ministry, uh, third uh, missionary journey. He's at Corinth. He's writing to the Church of Rome. He has not been to Rome at this point. It becomes very evident. And he will write this letter and he will send it to the churches that appears at Rome by the hand of a woman by the name of Phoebe. She's going to carry this letter to the churches of Rome. Do you want to meet Phoebe? I, I do, because she was probably the first person to read Romans. So. <laughs> anyway, so let's just read these words. And it says, uh, let's read seven verses. I'm just going to watch the clock this morning and see how far we get. Uh, I just want you to get excited about this book. I want you to start reading this book. and uh, So we won't get far this morning. So Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith amongst all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, and we can say today also to all who are in Albany, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul introduces himself and he says, Paul, just notice these things about this man. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, I love this man. I know he has... No, no, I love this man. Notice his heart. Notice how he's introduced himself. You know, he could have come along and said, uh, Paul, the eminent theologian. He could have come along and said, Paul, the eminent theologian, the purveyor of God's sacred truths speaks unto you. He could have listed a whole list of letters after his name, declaring the impressive qualifications that he had, as people often do today. He could have, couldn't he? But how does he come to this church, to these believers whom he has never personally met? He says, but rather, rather, he says, I come, I, Paul, am a bond servant. Your Bible might say slave. A slave, he says, I'm a slave to the will of Jesus Christ. The word slave is not a kosher word, is it? It just isn't a kosher word because it speaks of things like being dominated. It speaks of things like being a possession of someone else. It speaks of, of hardship and, and so much like that. And these are the types of connotations that uh, we attach to the word slave but here's the thing, and this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. When you attach that to the name Jesus Christ, all those connotations disappear. 
don't they? Then it becomes a title, then it becomes a badge almost of great honour. For we are not slaves in a captive sense. But what Paul is talking about here is that we are willingly enslaving ourselves to serve and obey Jesus Christ because that's what a bondservant is. You go back to Exodus chapter 21. Uh, don't do it, but do it your own time. And you can read where it talks about the bond servant. The bond servant was a was a, someone who had previously been a purchased slave of somebody. Jewish law said at the end of seven years, all the slaves had to be set free. But a bond servant was someone who at that time does not want to take their freedom, but now willingly gives themselves to that master because that has been a kind master, has been a loving master, has been a master who they can trust their lives to. And now they willingly give themselves the entirety of their lives to that person to be their master all of their lives. That's a bond servant, willingly giving of themselves. So here's the Apostle Paul. Instead of exalting himself before the Romans, Paul humbles himself. This is the secret, I believe, to his greatness. I really do, or part of it at least, you know. Paul knew that like a slave, he had no personal rights. His life was dedicated to and dictated to by his master. He was totally sold out. Again, that's what that song was about that we were singing this morning. He was totally sold out to the will of Jesus Christ. And there is no doubt that is why the Lord used the Apostle Paul so greatly, the way that he did, you know. And here's the thing, we read this and we realise most certainly every single one of us is a slave. Is that not true? Is that not true? Not just every single one of us, but every single person in this world is a slave. Every single person in this world is mastered by something or someone. And here's the thing, so often men, or people I should say, Think of life as seeking freedom or getting freedom when in reality, you know what life's really all about? In reality, life is really all about finding the right master, to serve the right master. Paul here for 25 years has been a bond slave, has been serving Jesus Christ. His whole life belongs to Jesus Christ. You go back to Paul's previous life, he was a servant of religion. And we know the story of Paul. He was a slavish servant to religion, a religion that wanted to destroy Christ. And he said about his entire life, trying to destroy Christians. We know that, don't we? Until the Lord gloriously appealed unto him, not appealed, certainly appealed, but appeared unto him on the road to Damascus. From that moment, he'd found the master, hadn't he? He found the right one to serve. And so for 25 years, this man, and I hope you found the master. I really do. I hope you discover and know that Jesus Christ loves you beyond any comprehension that you are able to measure as you look upon the cross of Calvary as we've just celebrated what 
this world calls Easter, we call Resurrection Sunday. And as you've looked upon not only the death but the resurrection of the Lord and you've heard the voice of God speaking from Christ to your heart, I hope you've found the right master. I hope you've found the one who loves you, the one who will never abandon you, the one who says he will provide all of your needs. He will keep you. He will nurture you. He will strengthen you. He will never abandon you. And one day he's coming to receive you under himself that where he is you will be forever. Amen? That's your master. That's the one who Paul has been serving for 25 years. And that's how he introduces himself as a slave to this one. He was a slave called to be an apostle. He was what he was by the will of God. Notice that he says there that he was called. See, Paul didn't just decide to go into the ministry, as we like to call it today. He didn't decide this would be a good thing to do. Nor did anyone tell him, hey, Paul, this is what you should be doing with your life. No, he was placed. This is what this call is. He was placed in the ministry by the sovereign will of Almighty God. Please notice that. He would speak about this in his other writings. He spoke about this in 1 Timothy. Now, just listen to this. He said... And I thank, this is 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. And he said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful. Notice this, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. He did those things ignorantly in unbelief he says, but the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He put me into the ministry, Paul says. Paul became what he was and did because God was operating in his life. And that applies to you and I. We have to see this this morning. Just as God picked and he placed Paul in the body of Christ. He's done the same for you and I, each and every one of us. You know, We read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We read Romans chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, it tells us that God has set us members, that's you and I, each one of us in the body of Christ, how just as he pleased. That's us. Every one of us is called Christian. Every one of us has been placed specifically and purposefully. Every one of us is in the hands of our Master Jesus Christ for His unique calling upon our lives. Every single one of you in this room, I hope you understand that. Notice he says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. An apostle was the, the sent out one. We get our word missionary from that word. His life was a missionary. He was sent out by God. He represented his master. But notice, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Now hear this, separated to the gospel of God. We read in Acts chapter 13, where the apostle Paul said that God had separated him he was talking about he and Barnabas, actually. 
But he was saying God separated him to himself for the work which God had called him to. In the book of Galatians, Paul would again speak of it and he would say that God had separated him from his mother's womb. So he's recognising the sovereignty of God to be at work within his life, you know, recognising the sovereignty of God's purpose for his entire life. He sees the hand of God always at work within his life to bring him to that place. And I really think this is important for us to note. Paul was separated unto God, separated unto the gospel of God. I say it's important because... We all too often have this notion when we think about ourselves, we kind of put people like Paul and the greats over here and we look at ourselves and we see that God has, yes, separated us, but we have this notion that God has simply separated us from the things of this world. And we begin to use this language and this view of ourselves and we start to, to think and say things like, okay, I'm a Christian now. Because I'm a Christian now, I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't, don't go there. I'm not that anymore. And my Christian life becomes evidenced by the things that I don't do anymore. Do you understand what I'm saying? And there's a danger in that. Well, the danger in that is I become somebody who simply is standing on a high moral ground. Morality is essential, that is true, but a morality alone is not enough. My life should not just be evidenced by the things that I don't do anymore. My life should be evidenced by the holy, righteous life that I have been called to, just as the Apostle Paul was called to. Do you think about that with me for a minute? Think about it. See, I can come along to church because it's a safe, loving place. It's a good place to be. I can come along to church because I like, you know, the style of this place. I like the worship. I like the way things are done. You know, I can come along because of that. It's pretty casual. It's pretty relaxed. I can be who I am. I don't have to pretend and so on. You know, I can come along to church simply because of the people that are here But here's the thing, while those things are good and those things are true, those things of themselves will never be able to bring maturity to my life as a believer. But when I, like Paul, see myself as separated unto Jesus Christ, when I begin to walk in his steps, they become cliches, don't they? They don't. They shouldn't be cliches. When I begin to walk in his steps, when I allow the things he shows me to move me in directions of compassion and kindness and other-centered selflessness, I begin to become Christ-like, not just unlike who I used to be. Can you see the difference? I had a phone call this week. Someone rang me up, and I won't mention their names, and said, uh, Chris, I want to do this. I want to start this. This person has been coming along to this fellowship for a little while now, and they had recognised there's something missing. There is a part of the ministry that's not being catered for. And this person said, hey, I want to do this. I want to be a part of this. You know what they're saying? 
be called unto something. God's speaking to her heart. Men, I only say that to convince you. God is speaking to her heart and moving her unto the things that Christ is showing her. She separated unto others-centered selflessness. The thing that this person is saying is a sacrificial act for the body of Christ. It's when I see, it's when I am moved and I act just like him. Don't let it be cliches. I want to be more like Jesus. I follow the Saviour. Don't, don't let it be cliches. Because you can finish that sentence, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to follow the Saviour so I'm not like I used to be. See, no, no, no. It's not what I used to be. It's what I'm going to be, what I've been saved unto. And so here Paul is introducing himself. And he says, you know, if, if you walked up to the Apostle Paul and you asked him, who are you? Would you like to do that one day? If you walked up to the Apostle Paul and you said, who are you? This is what he would say. He'd say, I am Paul. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I've been called to be an apostle. I've been separated unto the gospel of God. See, I read this and I realize that I, that we, we need to know who we are as Christians. We really are. I mean, I've met too many believers that introduce them by, mas- by manner of contrast to who they used to be. This is what I was. This is what I was. This is what I was. No, no, no. It's who I am becoming. It's who I'm becoming. You know. We have to know who we are as Christians. We have to know that God has called us. We know, I have to know that God has called me, that he has set me apart. You know that word separate there that Paul uses? Set apart is the word where we get our word horizon from. That's a beautiful word, isn't it? Love to look at the horizon. But the word is literally, that word there set apart is literally off horizon. In other words, a change of horizon. We were headed before Christ towards one horizon. We're going in a direction, a horizon that was separated from God and his purpose, but now life has changed And now we are headed towards a new horizon that is separated unto God, one that is radically different. We have have been changed forevermore. We have been called, as Paul talks of himself, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God to represent Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's who every single one of you are. And you have to know it. You have to be sustained in the knowledge of that so you just don't become someone that you were not. No, you have become someone who you are and who you are becoming. You've been called unto him. And notice Paul said that we've been separated to the gospel of God. It's 20 to 12. You know what I might do? Because I've knocked off a verse. Actually, I haven't, have I? Almost knocked off eight verse. Let me finish this. If it's separated to the gospel of God, so the horizon that is before us, the motivation for every act in our new horizon 
is the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? Of course, it's the good news. That's what gospel means. We carry the good news of Jesus. And I want you to note, and this is where I'm going to pick it up next week. I want you to note, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel of God. You know what that means? That means that the gospel originated with God. It's not an invention of man. See, we don't offer people any theological novelties. There's enough of them out there and there's enough of them in the church already. No, we don't redefine the gospel. We don't try to accommodate changing society and changing moralities around us. No, it's the gospel of God. Paul says, I am Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he, notice where it comes from, he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The thing about the gospel of God is it has come to us through the prophecy, the prediction of centuries of teaching and preaching that's been given to us from the Garden of Eden right through the Old Testament until the, until the appearing of Christ and the development of the New Testament through the epistles of the, gospel, of, of, of the disciples. And it's come through there and that should be something that is a great safeguard to us. So here's where I'm going to end. This is, this is my hook for next week, right? This tells us that everything we do, Christian, you and I, who have been called unto the gospel of God, every single one of us as slaves, everything that we do is linked to that gospel that has been given to us from the garden right through. So everything we believed have its origins in the Old Testament. Every major doctrine. And we're going to see that as we go through the book of Romans. Every major doctrine, everything we believe, every major doctrine has its beginning in the Old Testament. And, and like, like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a... Tether like a theme flowing through the scriptures to ultimately be fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the safeguard you and I have. That you and I have. So if anybody comes along, and Paul talks about this in Galatians, doesn't he? If anybody comes along with a gospel that I myself have not preached, he said, even if an angel from heaven, or I myself, he says, come back and tell you something I haven't heard. You know what he said? Let them be anathema is the word. Let them be cursed. And anathema is a curse unto, unto damnation. So he's saying, this gospel that saves is protected within the sanctity of the word. And that's why this book brings life. Takes us all the way through the plan of God. Are you okay with that? Are you happy with that? So you're good to start there. This is where we're beginning. Amen? So who's called? Who's a slave? Come on. Come on, who's a slave? Who's set apart? Who is a master? Now you all have to put your hands up. Who is a master? Who's got the right master? Thank you, everyone. All right, I, I know it is time is fleeting. Um, and we will pick it up there. I'm sorry. Didn't get close to where I wanted to get. But, but with all these things in mind, 
Um, we're going to gather around the communion table now. As these elements come to you, the bread and the cup, certainly we know that they are representative of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. You see, Paul introducing himself there in the book of Romans is talking about his own story. And that story is a story that is washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a story of... uh, Excuse me, it's a story of, of... arrogant pride because that's who he was it's a story of vehement vengeance towards that which he didn't understand because that's what he did it's a story of murder because that's who he was at the same time it's a story of an invasion it's the word I used earlier Can you see Paul on the road to Damascus? Can can you just take a journey with me now? He's on the road to Damascus. He's going with one single purpose in his mind. It's to kill Christians. It's hard to think, isn't it? To see Christians taken out. And as he's on the road, suddenly this glorious light doesn't just appear but it engulfs him. This light engulfs him and throws him to the ground. And I'm certain as I read that, there's this fear there. There's great fear there, you know. But there is also the presence of mind where Paul says, Who? Who are you? But remember what he heard before that. Remember the words that God said to him? The Lord said to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? And with that statement, Paul says, but who are you, Lord? And the Lord reveals himself to him. And he's taken, you know, blinded and, in a sense, broken. And he's picked up, you know, and he's taken into Damascus. And he's taken to a street called Straight where he's laid down upon this bed. And he's there for three days. And those three days, the Lord is showing him things. There's another man by the name of Ananias in that city who God is also speaking to. And God says to this Ananias, you need to go down to Paul and pray for him because I have... Oh, look, I'm paraphrasing. I'm sorry. Basically saying, I've got lots for this guy to do. You know, you know what Ananias says? And I said, Ananias says, no. Not going near that fella. <laughs> you, you know what that fella's been doing. But of course, Ananias, aren't we grateful for that man? You meet that man in glory, you shake his hand. So he goes down there in obedience to God and he prays for him. And God had said that he had been showing Paul the things that he was going to suffer for his sake. This is the amazing thing about the Apostle Paul. You read 1 Corinthians 2, Corinthians 11, and that list of things that he experienced in faithfulness to the gospel. It's just such such a life of being attacked and being... Imagine being grabbed and dragged out 
of the city and stoned to death, essentially. And to be revived and, and then dust yourself up. And, okay, Lord, let's go back in. We can go back in, you know. Imagine being scourged over and over again, beaten with, with sticks and scourges over and over again. Imagine being shipwrecked at sea. Imagine being abandoned and attacked by the people that you love and have a passion to see them saved. Imagine, you know, the people that you are preaching to, this wonderful message of God's love and God's grace, and for them to turn upon you like a wild animal and want to tear you to pieces, but only to be saved by the people that are going to hang you upside down. Okay, to cut your head off, sorry. You may not know what I'm talking about, but that's Paul's life. That's his life. You know? And he gets to the end of that life. This is what we say. He says, I want to know him. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of of his suffering. That what? I might be conformed to that image. Notice what he's saying. I'm going somewhere. I've been called to something. That something is Christ-likeness. I want a part. It's all about the blood that has washed him clean of the sins of that old life. It's all about the promise of God to keep and to sustain him through this life until God will one day receive him unto himself. And, and how glorious it was that he could say that you know, he'd run his race. He'd run his race. There was a crown of righteousness awaiting for him. And they were the things that were going through his mind when his head was placed upon the block as it was severed from his body. Do you want to hear this? I don't know. I don't know. But he was going somewhere. Where is God taking you? You're not going to lose your head. Well, I don't know. We look at what's happened to Israel Falal. You know, he's just a football player, right? It's all, oh, no, it's not, it's not football, that game, is it? <laughs> he's a rugby player. He's quoting scripture. And he's being persecuted for it. How much, how big of a leap is there from persecution to take away his livelihood, to take it all away? He's not going to stop speaking. He's going to keep speaking. They're going to continue to be infuriated by him. What's the next step? We don't know. Why am I telling you all of this? I'm telling you all of this because we are called. And we're going somewhere. We're going somewhere. It's not who we were, but it's who we are becoming. That cup in your hand, that piece of bread in your hand, represents that journey. He's the bread of life, he said. If you, if you eat of me the bread of life, you will never hunger again. The cup is his blood. 
the blood of the new covenant. If you will drink this cup, you will drink of his blood, you will accept his forgiveness, you will never thirst again. You'll never thirst again. You'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again. All these things that were ripped away from the Apostle Paul, all these things that have been ripped away from Israel, I can't even say his name, Palau, all these things that may be ripped away from us have got nothing to do with where we're going and who we're going to become and the glory that we're going to know. I pray that God will bless every single one of your lives. I pray your lives will be fruitful. I pray your lives will know joy and peace and happiness. But I also know that your lives will suffer loss for the kingdom's sake. That's the journey we're on. That's the path we're on. And the greatest example we have is one who allowed himself to be taken up by wicked hands and nailed to a cross. Mm. Just before he did that, he fell on the ground at the feet of his disciples. He washed their feet. He says, as I have done unto you, you do likewise to one another. Mm. You serve one another. You honour one another. Be what God wants you to be. And allow him to take you there. You ready? Mm. I hope you're there. Hope you're ready. God bless you. Thank you for this time. Let's pray and take this cup and take this bread.